0: Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. We only briefly touched on the beginning of Genesis 17 last Sunday. We had to touch on it because the restatement of covenant was vital to what we were looking at in chapter 16. So I will begin by reading at Genesis uh, chapter 17 verse 1. I'll read through verse 14. Genesis 17 beginning at verse 1. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." Or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I've entitled the message this afternoon, The Meaning of the Sign of the Covenant. We've reached a place in Abraham's life now, having arrived at Genesis 17, where God has expanded on covenant, and with that expansion of covenant, he gives Abraham a sign. It's an uncomfortable sign. It's an unusual sign. And I remember as a young man asking my dad, what is that, and not getting a very straightforward answer. Um, I think it was as straightforward as he could give me at that moment in my life. Well, I hope to give you a uh, practical um, uh, how shall we say, a more relevant explanation than what a young boy got from his father at, a, at a, an, probably an inappropriate age to ask the question. Last Sunday, we completed our study of the events of Genesis 16 involving Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. Abram and Sarai had been tried by a 10-year wait. They had tried, and their faith in God was tested as they waited for that decade for God to fulfill the promise of a son really the fulfillment of all of his promises of covenant. And it was through that son whom the blessings of covenant with God would succeed and be fulfilled. Ultimately, the son he was looking for would not be Isaac, but it would actually be Christ who would eventually descend from Isaac. Now in their impatience, their faith weakened, and they became double-minded, or as James puts it, double-souled. Without the fixed, certain, tenacious resting on God's promises to establish and settle themselves, Abram and Sarai fell into sin and folly as they allowed fallen human reason and emotion to, derive, to drive their belief and to drive their practice for a time. And the chaos that the conception and the birth of Ishmael brought into their lives, it could have been avoided if they had simply patiently trusted in God and prayerfully asked for wisdom to understand God's providence in their life, as well as wisdom to remain faithful in a time of testing of their faith. This is where we left things last time. Now today, as we move fully into chapter 17, we discover that God was far from blind to the problem of Abram's and Sarai's wavering faith. Immediately, we discover that God expands his revelation of the nature of the covenant that he's established with Abram. If Abram's and Sarai's faith was weak in the future, it was certainly not going to be due to the fact that God had not graciously provided evidence of his covenant faithfulness or because he neglected to teach them regarding the character of his covenant. He does that very thoroughly here in chapter 17. Genesis 17, therefore, think of it as a classroom. It's a classroom for, for Abram and Sarai. God is correcting ignorance and unbelief And in the process, Abram and Sarai will become more firmly established in their faith. It will be more certain to them. Abram's faith was expressed in expectation of unfulfilled promises, while our faith rests in promises fulfilled. Nevertheless, the same covenant of redemption through the seed, Jesus Christ, is the same that we enjoy with Abram and Sarai. Now as we proceed to look at Genesis 17, what I want to do is to draw out some of the characteristics of God's gracious covenant of redemption, which he's now revealing more of to Abraham. And I want to do that for the strengthening of our faith. That was the purpose for Abram and Sarai. Now as we do that, I want to also show you how circumcision relates to the covenant as a symbolic representation of the character of God's gracious covenant of redemption. Now, if you've wondered, why did God require circumcision of those in covenant with him in the past? Or why was circumcision the right sign for God to require of Abram and the Jews? If you've ever wondered that, this message should help you. Now, the first thing we learn about God's gracious covenant of redemption here in Genesis 17 is that it's a covenant of righteousness, Or more specifically, we should say that righteousness is a condition of the covenant. Notice verses 1 and 2. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now don't miss the significance of the timing of this declaration. It follows on the heels of the moral chaos of chapter 16. Part of the purpose of God in teaching Abram about his covenant in chapter 17 is to turn Abram's thinking from merely perceiving the material nature of the covenant to merely the, the physical material blessings of the covenant. God wants Abram to begin to to think about the spiritual nature of the covenant. Yes, there were physical blessings. There was real land, there was there was a real inheritance, there was a real succession. But those blessings were conditional upon spiritual realities less easily perceived. For instance, to be in covenant fellowship with God, God is telling Abram, you have to be righteous. By those who approach God, he must be regarded as holy. He has said, be holy for I am holy. Now this presents a real problem for Abram. It presents a problem for anyone who desires to be in covenant fellowship with God. For any fallen creature, we have an issue. None of us are righteous. No, not one. So the challenge is a gauntlet thrown down by God, which no creature can pick up. That Abraham recognizes this is revealed in the fact that we're told he immediately falls down on his face. Not even the heavens, we're told, are clean in the sight of God. Now, with the requirement of righteousness, Abram is made to look to God for existential redemption. Physical, spiritual, moral redemption. He is going to have to go to God for it. He is, by nature, outside of covenant fellowship with God. Outside of the the possibility of redemption. God must supply the Redeemer who will bring righteousness to Abram by imputation. And God must work in Abram's very nature to live a life that's righteous as God is righteous. When God says, walk before me and be blameless, imagine how those words must have hit Abram in that moment. First of all, he's talking to God. I can't even imagine what that's like. What did he see? What did he hear? But then those are the words that God uses. Walk before me and be blameless. By by the way, be blameless. When God says, walk before me and be blameless, he speaks with the same voice of divine supremacy which once said, let there be light. And there was light. What God is saying is that God will work in Abram both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He'll make Abram a volunteer in the day of his power. And why will God, why will he imminently work out a sanctified salvation in Abram? Why would he do that? Because he has sovereignly determined to enact a covenant of peace and mercy and blessing with Abram. No wonder he fell on his face. Now from this perspective of the righteous character of God's covenant, the sign of circumcision is revealed to be exceptionally appropriate. First of all, it speaks of the removing or the cutting off from oneself that which is unacceptable to God. That which is anathema to his covenant. The removal of this flesh conveys the idea of separation from unrighteousness. It's done as an act of obedience, which is a picture of practical righteousness when God is obeyed fully from the heart. The physical sign of circumcision was meant to present a condition in the heart of the redeemed person. The outward physical circumcision was meant to declare an inward cleansing and sanctification of the heart you don't have to take my word for that. In Romans 2.29, Paul notes this purpose. He says the following, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. The sign of the covenant in circumcision was intended to declare to Abraham and his descendants that only through the imputation of righteousness accounted to us by faith and only with a sanctified life accompanying that faith was covenant with God to be enjoyed. Now to those of us living in this New Testament era, the teaching hasn't changed. Christ has fulfilled the condition of righteousness and he's given us his spirit and re into that, that spirit he has um, uh, recreated us you might say and rebuilt within us a different kind of heart he has circumcised the foreskin of our hearts This was always God's requirement, and his covenant always has established this reality in the lives of his people. Now, how can I say that? Deuteronomy 10, 16 reminds us of this. Here we read the command. God says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. He said that to Israel. The encouragement for us today is that our God has not changed. He'll not change, and his covenant does not change. We are always going to be legitimately in that covenant and the condition of righteousness will be met in us by the sovereign power and the grace of God. It's not possible for us to be unrighteous and in covenant with God. That's what I'm saying. It's not possible for even one to be snatched out of his hand, one of those covenant believers snatched out of his hand when he's holding us in covenant with him. Brethren, What I'm telling you is that you can take a deep breath of relief knowing that the condition of righteousness, while that is irremovable, it's nevertheless certainly fulfilled in us through Christ and by his Spirit. You will never be outside of covenant because of unrighteousness if God has established you and called you into that covenant with him. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So what have we said about the covenant so far? We've said it's a righteous covenant. Notice also that God teaches Abram that his gracious covenant of redemption is exclusive. Exclusive. Not all are included in it. Many are deliberately excluded. Notice what he says. The coven- is very precise in his language. The covenant is between me and you. The covenant is going out to all nations, not going out to all nations, pardon me, the covenant is not going out to all nations, but rather to the nations and the kings that come from you, Abram. That's interesting. God's fulfillment of covenant will in part be the dispossession of the nations and the peoples of the land of Canaan as God gives that land to Abram and his descendants. As we read further into the chapter, we reach verse 14 and discover that there's another population who are cut off from the gracious redemption of God in his sovereign choice to covenant with whom he will. In other words, God's covenant is elective, it's selective. He chooses whom he'll save and whom he wills he he rejects. He gives faith to whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Now Paul reminds us of this in Romans 9. He reminds us that God is under no obligation to enact a gracious covenant with any man. If he chooses to harden Pharaoh, then Pharaoh is hardened to his doom. Pharaoh hardens his heart and he's out of covenant. It's according to God's sovereign will that he chooses to love Jacob and hate Esau. God's covenant is characterized in part by sovereignly determined exclusion. Now again, the sign of circumcision as a symbol of God's covenant is proven to be very apropos. Notice that God declares this in Genesis 17, 14, when he says the following, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Especially note the words cut off. That's not a coincidental expression that just happens to coincidentally relate to the process of circumcision, that cutting off is directly connected. A large part of the meaning of circumcision is attached to the idea of excision. In this case, the picture of cutting away is meant to remind God's people that they would be like the other nations, cut away from God, outside of covenant with him, were it not for his covenantal mercy, his gracious pouring out of his saving goodness upon them and what happens think about this what happens to flesh when it's cut away from the life of the body it withers and it decomposes and it's destroyed when you lose a limb you have very few moments a short amount of time for that finger or that limb to be reattached surgically for it to take life and be sustained and and grow again Or thrive again. The cutting away is a declaration to God's people that apart from his grace, separating them from the world and to himself, they would be destroyed. They would die apart from him. Further, it warns us, it warns the people of God that there's no reason to go to the nations who are cut off for help, who are cut off for support and redemption or anything good. They're cut off. They'll not provide you with spiritual good. They'll not bring you into redemption to your God. They'll not teach you the righteousness and the blamelessness that God's requiring. Don't be cut off like them, God is declaring. So the sign of circumcision is both a warning to not choose exclusion, and it's also a humbling declaration of the grace of God that should stir up thanksgiving in the hearts of God's people. I've not been left in my sin, as God would have been right to do if he had chosen I had sinned away any, uh, any uh, obligation that I might imagine that God might have to save me. We have not been cut off and cast away as the others whom God has appointed for destruction. Rather, he has chosen to select us and bring us into this covenantal fellowship, this blessing with him. Now, by way of application, the physical sign of circumcision is no longer requisite for the people of God now that Christ has fulfilled that righteous requirement of the law. But if we remember that circumcision outwardly is supposed to represent circumcision inwardly, that is of the heart, our application becomes more clear. Since God has established an exclusive covenant of salvation and circumcision was requisite in that covenant, now it's circumcision of the heart then the Christian ought to be greatly motivated to live in the fellowship of their covenantal union with God, being circumcised of the heart, that is, being sanctified and holy in our manner of life. Since God has separated the other nations to be cut off from salvation and to enter into judgment, we ought to be circumcised in our lives unlike the cut-off nations and like the holiness of our Lord. Now, Peter says this very thing in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14. Listen to his words. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, speaking of the day of the Lord and the ending of all the creation and the judgment of God, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. With Peter's words, with this idea of what the inner circumcision of the heart looks like, we're being reminded by the Old Testament practice of circumcision and its connection with the covenantal blessings of God, we're being reminded to live holy and godly lives as we wait for that time when God will judge those excluded from his covenant. Now, having noted that God has taught Abram that his covenant is exclusive, let's also note that God also teaches Abram that his covenant is gracious, it's incredibly gracious in terms of the expanse of its scope. The covenant is abundantly merciful in scope. God has already told Abram that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed due to God's covenantal blessings to Abram. In Genesis 17, God speaks of a multitude of nations that would enjoy the blessing of God's covenant proceeding from Abram. It's a, a prophetic mention so, so far ahead of the showing up of Christ and his accomplishment of redemption on Calvary. Nevertheless, God is stating it in a hidden and veiled fashion, beginning to reveal more and more. In fact, it's so clear now, in one sense, because Abram's being called a father of nations. How is that even possible when really only one nation should come, one ethical group, ethnic group rather? It's a mistake to think of the exclusive nature of God's covenant as restricting its extent, or rather the scope of its power, the scope of what God intends to do with it. This is a vast covenant it's encompassing multitudes of people who'll be redeemed of God. It will encompass multitudes of redeemed for generations. How many are we talking about? I don't know. Are we talking about billions? Are we talking about trillions? Are we talking about quadrillion? I don't know. Far more than the stars that can be seen with the naked eye on a clear night in the high country. Now, if you could count the stars on a clear night, you would on average count between 2600 and 4,500 stars, depending on your location in the season. God has far exceeded that number. Uh, We would say grossly exceeded that number in the scope of his covenant of gracious salvation. The nations have come to Zion as prophesied by Isaiah. God has caused nations that have not known him to seek him salvation has come to the gentiles in romans 9 25 and 26 paul is stating this truth and he quotes the prophet hosea and he says the following indeed he says in hosea those who were not my people i'll call my people and her who was not beloved i'll call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you're not my people there they will be called sons of the living god this is, the, this is the prophecy of the bringing in of the Gentiles into God's covenantal uh, graciousness, his covenantal uh, redemption. The sign of circumcision works well here as well. In Galatians 3, 7-8, through 8, Paul tells the Gentile, uh, the Gentile Galatians this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So we have this massively huge multitudinous mix of generations of people in covenantal union with God. And they're all children of Abraham because they have Abraham's faith in the redemptive grace of God promised in the Redeemer Jesus Christ. They're all connected as a single spiritual family. Israel was a mixed group of Jews and those of foreign extraction, even in the Old Testament. Even those, I think there were those that came to live with them, such as Rahab the harlot, Ruth the Moabitess. As we're reminded in Genesis 17, all the males were circumcised. Descendant of Abraham or stranger or a servant, all were circumcised. A right, we might say, passed over all ethnic distinctions and united them as a single people of God. Now, likewise, among the redeemed of all ages, past, present, future, there is a real filial relationship spiritually. There's a real right that unites us. We are all regenerated by the Spirit of God. The foreskin of our hearts has been cut off. We're now all together as described by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Listen to what Jeremiah says of the coming covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Do you hear the change? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, regeneration of the heart, circumcision of the inner man, that's the sign of the people of God in the new covenant era. You have been brought into a vast family, and though very mixed, We all display a singular character, the mark of the family resemblance, you might say. We all have had the image of God restored in us. And we're all growing in the inward man into the likeness of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing, brethren, then, as loneliness when you're part of the covenant of grace. That covenant has created a union with God which also brings a vast family of brethren with it, of all nations, tribes, kindreds, tongues. Those things don't matter. Not within the covenant of grace. Now one last teaching to look at and we're done. In Genesis 17, God is teaching Abraham that his covenant of gracious redemption is also everlasting. It's not touched by time. It can't fade or be forgotten it won't be broken by god or annulled by him no other power physical or spiritual can separate the redeemed from the covenantal love of god it's everlasting in genesis 17:7 7 through 8 god says the following i will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, and I'll give you to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What, am, what are we saying? What are we learning? It's not possible for the covenantal love of God to cease, or for his people who are redeemed by him into that covenant to cease to be righteous to somehow become unrighteous sufficiently to be removed from the covenant. In Jeremiah 31, after speaking of the nature of the new covenant that we just read about, that covenant being written into one's heart, speaking of regeneration, God then immediately proceeds to declare the permanency of this new covenant with his people. In Jeremiah 31, 35-37, God declares, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. What does he say? If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If the heavens above can be measured... And the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I'll cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. Do you hear the permanency he's declaring? It's not possible. Take out your measuring stick and measure the universe. Discover every hidden cave and nook and cranny in the depths of the earth. Go to the very molten core of the earth, although they believe it's, I think, not molten now. It's, they change. We've already discussed who the offspring of Israel are. Brethren, this is, this is telling us of the redeemed, the permanency of God's goodness to the redeemed. Who are, who are the offspring of Israel, the offspring of Jacob, the son of Abraham? They are the redeemed of all nations, tribes, kindreds, and tongues who believe in the covenantal promises of God just as their spiritual father Abraham believed. We believe them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We believe like our father Abraham. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith is counted to us as righteousness and we're saved. Now, as we consider what God has declared to Abraham of the permanency of his covenant, once again, we discover that the sign of circumcision is ideal to convey the nature of God's covenant. In verse 13, speaking of the sign of circumcision, God says, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. What is he saying? Where's that connection? He's simply saying this, brethren. Circumcision, if nothing else, is permanent. It's an unfading mark. It can't be undone. As such, it declares the permanency of God's covenant in its effect upon us. It declares the fixed nature of his grace to us. It demands that we consider that his covenantal requirements are also fixed and everlasting. It declares that the righteousness we receive by faith in Jesus Christ is certain. Its unfailing righteousness is Christ's righteousness. The permanency of the mark of circumcision preaches to God's people that they must be faithful as he is faithful. The sign of circumcision reminds us that we are kept permanently in covenantal union and fellowship with him by the persevering power of his spirit working in us so that we don't walk away, so that we don't violate his covenant and turn away. Circumcision as a sign of sanctification even carries a successive meaning, a future meaning. It declares that the good work that God has begun in us, he'll see through to the end. Now in your mind, tie the obsolete physical rite of circumcision back to regeneration and sanctification. Tie it back to its spiritual counterpart, circumcision of the heart. The work of regeneration in you, which God has begun, is a testament to the certainty of your salvation to eternity. In Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul assured the Philippian believers with these words, I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ the circumcision of your heart which God has worked in you so that you may be in covenant with him, that will not end. It won't be extinguished. It can't be restrained for any real length of time or by any created power. Christ will not break the reed he has bruised nor quench the flax he has ignited. Brethren, you've been circumcised of the heart. Why? Well, Paul answers that question in Ephesians 2 in verses 5 through 7 he says even when we were dead in our trespasses god made us alive together with christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up seated us with him in heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus you see what paul is telling the believers at ephesus is that god has an eternal purpose in the circumcision of your heart. You you were brought out of dead trespasses, that dead condition of living in sin and trespasses, and made alive so that God could show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. God has done this so that For all eternity, he could pour out his goodness and his grace upon you. He's cut away the foreskin of your heart, separated you from those outside of covenant to himself so that he might even glorify you in heavenly places and thereby glorify himself. What a thought. That's what is meant by an everlasting covenant. What a God. I hope these lessons of covenant drawn from Genesis 17 have been a blessing to you this afternoon. And I hope you also have a better understanding of why circumcision was decreed by God as an appropriate sign of his covenant with his people. Remember that that circumcision of the past now corresponds to the regenerating work of God in your heart, just as it did in Abraham and in the people of Israel long ago. Remember that and you'll never feel disconnected from the saints of old. Remember that God has sanctified you by the circumcision of your heart and you won't feel disconnected from his covenant. There's great blessing and help for our souls when we meditate on the lessons of covenant which God unveils for his people here in Genesis 17. Carry these lessons with you into the week. When there are overwhelming moments of testing, meditate on these truths that we talked about and strengthen your faith. It's no accident that God has put the patriarch and his wife in this classroom, in this time in their lives. They had worried and fretted and they had acted foolishly over the apparent delay of God. They had engaged even in immorality due to that weakness of faith. Let's therefore remember the lessons of Genesis 17 as an admonition to us to correct our tendency to doubt or distrust God or fret and worry over purely material things. Let's remember the character of God in his covenant. Amen?